Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome back to the Awakening Shalom podcast. We are in our new podcast series, Upamine which means persevering or uh, patient endurance. We found this word repeated over and over again in our Second Testament in the Christian Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation to John, where he keeps calling for the persecuted followers of Christ to practice upamine or to practice patient endurance or perseverance while they were being under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. So we decided to name our podcast this and to really talk with people in our network, our community, our family, and our friends of Myers Park Baptist Church about how they are persevering in a pandemic. I am Mia McLean, and I'm here with Benjamin Boswell, and we have two special guests. Many of you probably know some of these people, (laughs) but if you don't, we're going to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. So Ben, go ahead and take it away. Well, I'm super excited to have two of my closest clergy colleague friends in the world, uh, Rabbi Asher Knight and Rabbi Dusty Class, who I love dearly and uh, uh, cherish uh, their friendship and learn a lot from and uh, just glad to be in ministry with them here in the city of Charlotte. So just want to give them a chance to give a little bit more of their bio. So, you know, Asher, Dusty, why don't we start with Asher and just kind of give a little bit more of like, what do our people probably not know about you and how you got to Charlotte and all that? Um, all right. So what people may not know. So I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, um, and I am a fifth generation out of six generations that have been in Colorado uh, going all the way back to actually the gold rush. Um, so when I think of home, um, the, you know, Colorado is very much home. So D- Dusty didn't know that, did you? Um, so, um, so Colorado is very much home. I have a lot of family uh, in Colorado. Um, but then after um, college, I actually went to school in the, at the University of Denver. And then after, after college, I matriculated to the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, which is our seminary, the seminary that both uh, Rabbi Class and I uh, were ordained from. And the first year is in Jerusalem, so we both spent um, time in Jerusalem. And then um, I went to the Cincinnati campus um, and ended up spending the next five years um, in Cincinnati. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the best... Uh, part of Cincinnati was um, leaving Cincinnati. Uh, I was really, I was really great. Um, Cincinnati is very close to Kentucky, and um, and and uh, but then you're, afterwards, you're on camera. I, I know I, I guess I am on camera. I don't, I don't want to, I don't really want to totally offend everyone. Kentucky, we love you. Um, I haven't started talking about Florida. Um, so the. Um, so the the conversation so, so effectively after uh, my ordination I went to Texas and I had this awesome opportunity to work at a fabulous congregation with incredible colleagues and a boss and um, and, and a community that I just adore 
and um, and worked there for for nine years, and you know really wasn't interested in leaving uh, Dallas at all um, until you know the opportunity here emerged, and sort of realized that this was you know, it was a really really great opportunity to become a se- the senior a senior rabbi of, of Temple Bethel in a community that I had heard about and had um, and and really respected, and so I uh, put my you know name in the hat and, and didn't, didn't actually think that it was, you know, come, going to come to fruition. And um, then lo, lo and behold, I got the call and uh, we moved here. And my very first, you know, 10 days after getting the job um, here in Charlotte, um, I, you know, while I was still in the process of, you know, uh, is, you know, thinking about moving and all of that, um, I got to go to New York uh, to hire my very first assistant rabbi. Um, and that, that person that we hired was, uh, Dusty class. So um, that's how I got, that's how pretty much we got to Charlotte. And I think the only other thing that I would say is that my wife is also a rabbi. Uh, we we um, are uh, one of the few rabbinic couples that did not meet in rabbinical school. Uh, we met at Jewish mm-hmm. summer camp, the other place where uh, people, um, you know, meet their significant other sometimes. And um, so it was at Jewish summer camp and uh, we have two beautiful children, uh, one who is eight uh, and his name is Micah and one who is four and a half, and his name is Jonas. So, um, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, awesome. that's how I got to Charlotte. Rabbi Class, how about for you? Uh, when Rabbi Asher Knight arrived in Charlotte, Jonas was not yet walking, and so I still find it a little ridiculous that uh, Micah is eight and Jonas is four. It's like a very, when you don't have kids, other kids' growth is even more pronounced. Uh, so I feel like time... I am marking my own time passing through the growth of all your kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington, um, and I'm a card-carrying West Coast kid. Um, uh, moved to Santa Barbara to in California for college, and then lived in Los Angeles uh, for the next six, seven years um, between. Uh, some time after school, and then I went to the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, is the full name of the title of the school that I went to. Yes. Uh, We all just call it HUC. Uh, So, henceforth known as HUC. Um, And uh, this is my first real real live rabbiing job. So I had a bunch of internships in, in Los Angeles. And before I went to rabbinic school, I spent two years as the um, advisor of the Southern California region of our national youth movement, NIFTI. So uh, someone put a 22-year-old in charge of 250 14 to 18-year-olds five times a year for a whole weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it was great. It was probably the best preparation I could have received for rabbinic school, actually. Um, and when I was looking for uh, where I would start my rabbinate, I um, I was 30 and I was just me. And I thought, I have the ability right now to go wherever the right place is and to find whatever the right community is and to not think about geography at all. Um, so that's how I got to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a place I probably couldn't have put on the map before I started the placement process of, uh, of looking for a job, but 
it's been a phenomenal four years. I really, really, really love it here. I love the green. I love the rain, actually, because that, my little my, my inner Seattleite um, oh, yeah. grows, grows a little bit in the rain. That's very Seattle. It is. Um, and it'll, it'll, um, it'll be raining outside and everyone's kind of like, ugh, and then Dusty, comes, Dusty will come into the office and be like, hey, everyone, you know, and, and like it's a <laughs> very, it's very weird. Um, for, for those of us who don't like, I grew up in Colorado, which, you know, people know that has, has, uh, no, but it actually has lots of sun. And so, um, there's like over 300 days of sun a year in Colorado. So, um, I'm like very much like sun is, it can be as cold as it can be as long as it's sunny. I don't care. And, um, and you know, Dusty's just super happy when it's rainy. Yeah. Well, it's good. It's good to have some different personalities on staff, I think. Right. It is. Balance. (laughs) I think we complement each other very well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes. I can testify to that. I can testify to that. Um, so I think one of the things that's most, um, you know, uh, on our minds right now is like, just share with, with our folks, like how, what, what was your life like in ministry, in your ministry and what you're doing before, you know, uh, the pandemic hit and how, what is it like now? Like, what's the dichotomy? We'll start mm-hmm. with Dusty this time. So it's really interesting um, because I've only been doing this for four years and because this is only, um, this is the only thing that I know. Like Temple Bethel in Charlotte, North Carolina is the only way I know how to rabbi. Uh, and I, I was reflecting with the confirmation class actually a couple of weeks ago uh, because the confirmation class has kind of lived through each of the bits of craziness that happen, and and we were talking about how every single year so far in my whole four years of doing this, there's been a thing, um, and sometimes it feels sometimes it's national, and sometimes it's local, and sometimes it's global. Um, so in some ways, like feeling the pain of whatever is happening in the world um, has always been, always in these four years, been part of. Uh, the work that we do, I think the um, the difference is where we're doing it and the mode through which we're doing it. So uh, I was joking um, yesterday that um, uh, we used to spend 14-hour days in the temple in our in our offices, and our clergy meetings involved lunch, and the lunch was takeout because there was no other way we were going to eat lunch. So somewhere between like 8 a.m. and 9 p.m., when we all lived in this one wing of this office, food would come in and we'd eat it. And that's how we'd sustain ourselves, right? And I do so many dishes now because I get to eat in my kitchen, uh, which is great. But I don't get to see a single other human being. And that is not great. Uh, And I think that's kind of the, that's been, that's been kind of the shift for, for us, I think that the, the crises are still the crises, but they're happening, the, the way in which we are able to manage and deal with and move through those crises have had to shift. I yeah. am tired of doing dishes, so I um, <laughs> with you there. <laughs> and I have no one to blame, it's like just me. Like how did I make all of these things dirty? Yeah. I saw, I saw some type of meme that was like, you know, uh, you know, uh, so and so has, you know, the, you know, the mother. The mother has twenty five cups um, in her, you know, that that are are um, that need to be washed. How many children does she have? And the answer was <laughs> the answer was two. 
Um, she has two. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. You know, yeah. There's a lot of we use five cups a day. Five yeah, totally. Cups a day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. We started. We started uh, using dry erase markers to to put the initials of our kids on the on the cups. Um, so. Um, you know, one of the things that I've loved about the Rabinet and about sort of the work that that we get to do on a daily basis is that every day has felt so variable, right? That that really um, that there's you know uh, there's times in which we're teaching and times in which we're having to learn in order to teach or just learn, you know, for the sake of learning. There's times in which we are with people during the oys and the and, and joys of life, the, you know, the, the really the ups and the downs. And there's times where we're meeting with people, uh, you know, face-to-face to have conversations about marriage, you know, the, the possibility and opportunity of, of, you know, marriage and what's before them in life, or sometimes even the, the dissolution of, or, um, you know, uh, meeting with families who are going through really the, the, you know, the gamut of welcoming a new, a new baby to, um, you know, to saying goodbye um, to someone. And, um, and there's times in which we are talking about how we're creating, um, opportunities for people to embrace Judaism into their lives and to walk with it in their lives. And that's just, you know, every single day, you know, I I could have a day where every single day looks completely different and it's sort of sustaining even if it's like long hours is sustaining to me precisely because of the way in which, um, I feel like we're engendering our, our faith and teaching our faith and living with our faith and, and, and helping people um, uh, to uh, live meaningful lives in that sense of connection to something bigger than themselves. And, um, and so I think that's, you know, if I'm sort of really honest about the, and, and to do great social justice, right? Like that's another piece is like to do good work in the world, right? Not just to, to live with the values that we have, but also to recognize that those values are made um, more real by the ways in which we, we walk in the world with them um, and the way that, that, it, that it, we, we impact the world. So um, in, in essence, like that's, that's what I love about the rabbin and that's what I have loved about the work that we do at Temple Bethel. I think that if you, if you actually look, if you, if, if um, you know, some people say that budget is a, is a moral document and it is, um, but so too is a calendar. And if you look at the sort of schedule, it's a moral, it's a moral document. And, um, and that moral document really shows, uh, you know, at Temple would, would have shown um, the congregation living in its values um, in the ways in which we gather and way we grow and ways, the ways in which we, you know, uh, play, the ways in which we, you know, pray and, and uh, show up for each other and for the community and care for one another and are accountable to each other through you know, the, the governance work that we do. So it, that's, I, you know, that's what, what Temple Bethel has meant to me as a rabbi um, and as a community member. Um, what I would say, the way that I would say that it has changed is, um, is that um, I think that we're doing much of that. Um, and I've been, what I've been so proud of in terms of our team and our, our professional staff has been able, being able to pivot to doing that in a digital world. Um, and not and, and and then at the same time, 
um, to pivot in a way where the digital uh, connections help to encourage things beyond ourselves too. Like, so, you know, we just, this last week was a perfect example where we had hundreds of people gather together online to do good work um, organized by Rabbi Class and by a, an amazing team of lay leaders to do good work and, and to deliver, you know, graduate cards for you know, kids who are graduating high school and to, but, you know, to, you know, in college, like to, to do, to do like really lovely, nice things to make masks, to, you know, and, and to, to do good in the world, not, not just in like large, you know, there's also the large stuff, but sometimes the small stuff. So I think we're trying to transcend all that, but it feels much more, um, it, the, the, the real big difference is I think that, you know, Ben, you really hit it on, on the head and Mia, you hit it on the head as well, is that that sense of, of, of not being able to be in physical proximity to people. And I think that is the hardest part for me right now, whether it's in the joys of celebration or it's in the, in, you know, the morning that, you know, of, of walking with people in their, in their lives, like the, the ability not to, I'm a hugger and the ability not, mm -hmm. not to be able to give a hug and to not be able to be in that physical proximity. Mm -hmm. That's really hard. Um, and I think the other thing that's really changed for me is that, uh, is, um, homeschooling. Um, I know that sounds really <laughs> sort of, sort of ridiculous, but, um, <laughs> no, no. Boy, oh boy, do I value our teachers. Um, and even though I am a teacher, I am not an elementary school teacher. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, distance learning for preschoolers is called parenting. And, um, you know, and that, like, it's just, um, so the combination of, you know, of trying to eke every, almost every minute of time out to, you know, to work and then be with kids and then to, and be with, you know, or to eat, to make food and then to go back to work and, to, you know, and this kind of constant back and forth. I know a lot of people are watching things. I know you, we talked about some watching something earlier. A lot of people are watching things on Netflix and other types of, you know, streaming media, but I feel like I'm not watching anything because I feel like I'm going back to work after the kids are, are asleep. So it's, it's been, it's taken me a while to watch, even watch something. And I think that's been the biggest change and, and there's a value to that. Don't get me wrong. I have really loved being with my family, and I there have been there were days where I'd have I would not be able. I would say goodnight to my kids at seven o'clock, you know, at seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning when I drop them off to school. But um, but it's a it is a it has definitely been trying in that aspect. Yeah, I, I think I think um, what we're doing what I, when you're talking about calendar, I think one of the things that's been fascinating is the way that I think we have. And I'm really proud of us for doing this because I think we've done it relatively well that we have to keep coming back to it. I think we're distilling. So I think we're distilling based on where we are, like the, through our values, um, what is at the core or should be at the core of what we're doing. And maybe it always should have been at the core, but it's real easy to just have something to like throw something onto somewhere when everything's possible. And as soon as you have to kind of close in on what's possible, you have to be more creative and you have to be clearer about what actually matters. And what's your mission. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, I, There's a clarifying uh, effect yeah. here. Yeah. Rabbi Dusty, I love the, the, the way you use that word. I never thought of it that way, but we've been having a lot of conversations too about sort of shrinking <laughs> what was a, a fuller calendar to meet, make it mean something right now because people need meaning, not just things. Um, and so what's really important? Um, where do we want to really spend our energy? That's been something that's coming up a lot. So thank you for that reflection.
And I, I would, I think it goes like also, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything that was, just, that was just said. I mean, I think that the, um, it, you know, I think that initially there was this push like, we got to provide content, 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 you know? And, 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 and then at the same time, it was like, listen, we're, now we're in fatigue, um, you know, both in terms of the, of the pandemic itself and also just, you know, being on, on, uh, you know, online platforms. So we got, so it can't just be about content. It has to be about meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that there's a, a for faith communities, and I think for us too, something that we're, we're trying to think through, and I'm not saying that we're there yet or masters of it in any way or shape or form is the idea that, um, that what, what sort of what's possible now is a conversation about, how to make faith happen at home so that, so that there's not, it's not just about a passive uh, experience of coming into a building and sitting down in a sermon. And I'm sure your sermons are really awesome and, and just as phenomenal as rabbi classes. Um, but you know, the, but it's not, it's not, it's just not about like, it can't just be about that anymore. And in fact, really your sermons have to be really limited because no one has the attention span online to even, you know, manage that. Right. But really what's at stake is sort of like, well, how are people go- creating an active experience of their lived, of, of lived faith, of ritual, of, you know, meaning making in their homes in a different way? And I think that, I think that will also sustain us. I mean, imagine if the kind of rituals that are created now in our homes are the kinds of rituals with our children or with ourselves are the kind of r- rituals that, that they, that they, you know, that our kids, let's say, grow up and pass on to their children and say, in the years of, of, you know, COVID-19, right, my family created this ritual. And this is, this has created meaning for me. And I'm passing it and I'm doing it with you, right. And passing that passing on. And I, I think this is a, this is a time of, of meaning making in that way. That's really what Judaism is like that. 21st century Judaism rests on a Judaism that was created out of the destruction of the temple when we were no longer able to do the things and practice Judaism in the way that we once were. And the, the phrase mikdash me'at, right? A little, a little temple, the mini temple, right? Um, it, each of our homes is a mikdash me'at, right? Like we have, yeah. we have that capacity for holiness within each of our spaces. And um, so and I think there's also something really cool about figuring out how to create sacred space in really everyday spaces. Yes. Uh, there's something really fun about that. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, I think that highlights a, a, a big distinction between 21st century Christianity and, and Judaism. And I've, I've mentioned this to, to Dusty a couple of times. It's like Christianity was born in homes home churches, home gatherings, um, these sort of like first century strange gatherings of, uh, of mostly Jewish folks and, and Gentiles trying to figure out this new thing that they're going to do together. Um, but, but then it became so driven by uh, buildings and empire and more buildings. And now, and I think the faith, uh, was all very much driven toward rituals that took place at a particular location, less so in the home. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, there's not, I mean, there are devotional practices, piles of them, obviously in Christianity, but there are not 
um, most of the rituals are imagined to only really be appropriately celebrated mm -hmm. when the entire body of a particular local community is gathered. So the major mm -hmm. practices of the faith, in fact, and all those major practices, of course, are tied to the major stories and the life of Jesus. So baptism, communion, um, they're all imagined to be things that need to be celebrated together when the whole body gathers. So there's not a lot of really um, long-standing, heavy rituals that take place in the home. You know, I think about, I, for instance, I think about Passover and just how home-driven that is. And Christians don't have anything like that, really, I don't think. And, and if they do, they don't practice it regularly. Um, nowadays, maybe they did at some particular time in Christian history. And so when, when in this particular pandemic, as we are forced into our homes, families who have not developed their own or individuals who haven't developed their own um, home-based religious practice um, are really feeling cut off from uh, their spirituality, from their faith, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I have some, I, I mean, I have some sympathy for it, but it, it also is very revealing because is, it's, it's a reminder. Is like that why building. there's, yeah, go ahead. Is that why a lot of the evangelical communities, I mean, do would you say that that's why the evangelical communities and other communities are pushing so hard to go back to the buildings? <laughs> well, I'm not, you didn't tell them we were going to talk about that. Listen, if you think you made Kentucky mad earlier, I, I'm about right. to make all of America mad. Uh, no, but I, I, mean, I think that's actually really, I think you just made an interesting point, which is, which, and, and you don't have to answer that. I don't want to get you in trouble. But the, um, but like, no, I think it's an, actually an interesting question is like, if you don't feel that you have the ritual at home that, center, that centers you, but instead it's actually based in a, in a place, right, mm -hmm. of gathering. Right the public square becomes fundamentally important um, to, you know, to, to the, to the expression of your, of your faith. And it's, it, there could be a correlation. One, one can make an assumption that, um, you know, there, there could be a correlation between a drive to push back, come back to the, to the physical places as being fundamentally core to the faith community existing. That's that's true. The, the the wild thing, right, for evangelicals is that it, they're not dying to come back together. I use that term literally because they need to practice communion. Because communion is decentered in evangelical communities, mm -hmm. so it's not that they feel like traditional Christians have for two thousand years that without the body and the blood of, of Jesus, that they are they they are not in communion with the church or with God as, you know, as Catholic Christians and especially Episcopalians and Orthodox folks have thought about our faith. It very much driven before sermons, before anything other, other practices is that it's that, that act of communion, the ritual act of Eucharist and what it means. And it's a, you know, a means of grace, a communication of your relationship with God and with others and, but so, so that's not prioritized in evangelical communities. So it's some other theological concept about the political act of gathering, which I think is, I actually think that's kind of fascinating. I, I think it's the wrong politic, but I think it's fascinating. And some understanding of salvation as being communicated through the word preached, which is very, you know, like really important. So it's the, it's, it's hearing the word preached 
preach live and responding to the word in evangelical communities that is somehow tied to salvation and for also of a kind of very narrow view of the afterlife and going to heaven and finding the gateway and path toward that. Um, and so this idea that that has to happen physically, you have to be there to be able to respond in body to that yeah. word and to the way the word uh, draws something out of you. Um, and so to, uh, to your point, Asher, I do think that they feel the necessity, but of course that's very clouded by the politics of the moment and, and what's really the driving motivational factor is hard to discern. I mean, if you add, the, if you take the politics, then this, there's particular idea of salvation, and then you add economics to it, how could you discern what's the true motivating factor? Um, for the for this process, um, when there's so many other extremely powerful logics that are driving the that activity, so I, you know, I but I do think because Christianity is so building driven and community driven in its in what happens and the practices that that's part of it. What you say? Hmm, I would I would actually then I would expand that a little bit to kind of um, flesh out the spectrum of evangelicalism in this country. And so actually have a lot of um, more of the modern church plant evangelical churches who are not necessarily rushing to get back together. So we're thinking of like elevation down the street, right? Um, who has all of the technological capabilities to not even have to, and who had a large following of people who weren't coming in person anyway because they have like 15 campuses and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people watching online. So you have your like mega church evangelical church, and then you have your more smaller Bible church, family churches, who I think a lot of what's driving them is what Ben was talking about, the, the salvific power of being there in person but also economics, because they're a much smaller church. Um, and also just sort of my opinion, poor theology, and I don't care if anybody gets mad, but poor theology <laughs> um, around uh, what fear of God looks like. Mm. And the not showing up is, oh, you are, you, you know, the not showing up is, oh, you're putting your fear over your faith when you should be putting your faith over fear. You know, there's, there's a lot of that theology showing up in these spaces as well. Um, but I would say this is a great segue to, I, I would love to hear more about what you all think about the spectrum of Judaism and in how different sects are responding to this pandemic. Um, and the motivation for my question really comes from my relationship with uh, working in New York at a hospital. And the majority of a lot of my patients were from the Hasidic community. Um, and they have one of the highest infection rates in Brooklyn right now. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, many are still gathering. Um, and so we talk about this home-based faith, but then we also have this community of very devout people who are still um, gathering and it's becoming very dangerous. So I'm curious about how you fit in in the spectrum of Judaism. Um, it's interesting because as uh, as we were talking about the way in which Judaism has this really wonderful, rich, um, home-based ritual component to it, we also talk all the time about Judaism as a community-based religion, as Judaism as, like, you can't be a Jew, Jew alone on a desert island, right? That that prayer, there's there are certain prayers that 
um, only that only count that you only can say when you have at least 10 people, when you have a minion, a quorum present, right? So for all the things that are true about what it means to be able to do a lot of Jewish stuff um, without a bunch of people around, we talk all the time about how important it is to have other Jewish people around in order to, to particularly to pray um, and also to care for each other. Uh, the, both of those things are really, really present. And I think that's, um, in the beginning of this, the hardest thing for me, and, and Asher can really attest to this, was coming to terms with the idea of praying, of leading prayer outside of the physical building. I had a really hard time with that. Um, because, for a lot of reasons, I, because for me, there is something about physical, the physical presence of other people that allows me to pray more, better, to connect with God more, better, um, and without those other human beings who have God in them, right, to pray with, it's harder for me sometimes to, or, and at least, and, and in the beginning, very much so, to feel like I was going to be able to get to connect with God. If there weren't any other people around to remind me what God looks like, like, how do I even pray, right? Um, so I feel for, and, and, and that's coming from me, and I, in terms of, on the, on the spectrum of Jewish law observance, we're like, there's a big spectrum, and here's like really observant, I'm there, there, now I'm in the screen. Here's really observant, and like, reform Judaism is, is here-ish. And I put it here because you may be a Reform Jew who practices a lot of Jewish law, who's really adherent to Jewish law. Um, and you also may not, right? Reform Judaism says uh, you got to learn all the stuff and then you get to choose, and then you get to um, think through what it means to adhere to those rules and laws within the 21st century. Um, and which things make sense and how they make sense and what they were created to help us do and remember and get it up. That was, if I could, yeah, I mean, if I I could do a retake on that it's, it's, in 30 minutes, I'd say yeah. it's better. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, it's been around, kitchen tables and campfires and uh, places of gathering where, 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 where a lot of the meaning has been made and Jewish tradition really, really, you know, emphasizes like, you know, we're talking about sort of in, in gathering and sort of the, the, the temple. Well, you know, even going back as far back as biblical times, you know, there, the, the tradition was to go to the temple, the, temple in Jerusalem, right? Three times a year. Um, and, you know, Passover and Shavuot, the holiday that's coming up and, and that's at, at Sukkot. Um, and, and our people would make pilgrimages to go to the temple, you know, to, to the temple in order to observe. And from that, that became a model for what a Beit Knesset, for what a synagogue is. And the Beit Knesset synagogue is a house of gathering, a house of, a house of meeting. Um, and uh, in recognition, there's, um, there's this sort of sense of, you know, of that, that God, I think to what Rabbi Klaas was saying, that, you, you know, if you look around the world and you see, a world on fire and you see a world in pain and misery and in, 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 in difficult places, one may assume 
that there is no God. Um, and that's, you could make that assumption. And another assumption is that it's just a test. Um, and that you could just assume that it's, you know, if you, you know, if you put your faith over the, over the, uh, the fire and, um, it's, it, in fact, it's just, all, all this is just a test and Judaism sort of rejects both of those answers and Judaism, what Judaism says is that there is a God, there is pain and suffering and challenge. And the way that we make our way through it all is by holding hand, joining hands and marching forward together. And that's, that's why community has, has been so valuable over, you know, particularly over the years through triumph and tribulation, um, it's the community that supports and, 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 and bands together and, and, and prays together and lives together and celebrates together and eats together, um, you know, and, and does all those things together that help to create a sense of resiliency. Um, that said, um, how the different sects of Judaism are dealing with this. So I think, you know, in Charlotte, it's interesting because, you know, we have, you know, ultra Orthodox in Charlotte who are absolutely, um, uh, following the, the, the rules of, um, commun- you know, communal, uh, separation and our phys- physical distancing and, and, and social distancing, um, and are partners with us in have in talking through how we do, for example, this Hebrew cemetery here in, in, in Charlotte is a, a separate organization that serves, you know, reform conservative Orthodox Jews and everything in between and unengaged and, and you know, everything. And our clergy and our rabbis have, have banded together in, in, in have in a serious conversation about how we make sure that we're, we're doing mourning rituals, right. You know, mourning the people who have died, but doing it in ways that are um, protective of life. Um, so, you know, so that's, so it's, it's not, not everywhere do you see the same sort of reactions. What, what you do see, I think is, is happening is that in some of the more, um, some of the more, uh, ultra or not. Now you, you said earlier about we need to break out evangelical into a lot into like what kind of evangelical. And what I would say is that you sort of need to break out ultra orthodoxy into different types of ultra orthodoxy. Right. And that, and, and different types of orthodoxy period. And that, and that, and that is true for reform Judaism as, as well, which I think what, what, you know, as Rabbi Klaus was sort of talking about this, this spectrum, you know, we have, we have, you know, reform Jews who are really religious and we have reform Jews who are, um, who are, who are not, and who are, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you spiritual? know, pretty, I'm sorry, what? I said spirit. I'm, I'm making fun of the spiritual? religion, spiritual, like I'm not yeah, religious, not I'm spiritual. Thing. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Or whole podcast on that topic. Yes. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. But so I think that within the within ultra orthodoxy, you know, you have you have different groups, and some of those different groups um, adhere to and pay attention to science differently, and are connected to, to the broader community differently. And it's just not the it's just not the same. So you have ultra orthodox rabbis who are saying you must like you cannot do X, Y, or Z because of this, right? And and who who have you know proclamations you know and really being very quite clear. And then you have commu- you know some communities that are very very insular, and um and and are not. And those and and what's happening inside of those in, in, inside of those insular communities is something that's pretty pretty uh, concerning. Um, and a lot of people are concerned about it. So, you know, you talked about earlier, we talked about watching, you know, the, the TV show Unorthodox, right? Well, the, 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 the community that, the, 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 that is being represented there is the Satmar sect. 
that the Satmar sect, you know, existed really came into existence post Holocaust, you know, and what ended up happening in the Satmar sect was that their sort of singular mission was to repopulate the Jewish community that had been decimated because of the Holocaust. And they, they, that's like, that is their mission. And, um, and their, their mission. And so they lived in, they live in a pretty insulated insular community that is focused in on Jewish law and living and procreation and, and, and creating, you know, and, and, and creating families. Um, and yeah. Well, and, and is very distrustful of the outside world, right? That it was, it was really the, one of the scenes that was really um, telling for me was the Passover Seder when the grandfather is talking about, you know, he's listing all the ways in which trying to interact with people around them has failed, right? And, and you know, like, makes it very clear that we, we are what we need. We are all, who, all that we can trust. Um, and we, we are all we've got. And I think that that piece, that connected with what Rabbi Knight's talking about is, um, is a recipe for some of this. Yeah. And for trauma, you know, it's, it's, it's what happens post trauma. You know, you have generate, you have generations of, of Jews who are living in a post, you know, in a, in a, in a post trauma and that trauma, that trauma has a little has also generational impacts from one generation to the next. We pass on the trauma, you know, from one generation to the next, and that 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 does exist there. Um, so it just I think it really depends on the community. Not all Orthodox communities are the same, and what you're seeing in certain areas of certain places where there's high uh, high volume of, of of people from that that particular those particular insular sects is where you're really seeing the problems. Um, that are that, but that's not it's not really widespread, and that's not what's happening in Charlotte. And I will also just say um, that speaking of uh, intergenerational trauma, one of the interesting things that I think um, isn't um, isn't just the Jewish population, but it, I think is some certain minority populations, um, the connection of disease with a Jewish community is also a long part of our history, right? Like. Jews have been blamed for all sorts of plagues throughout history. And I remember very early on. The plague. Yeah, like the plague. Capital T, capital P, the plague. Um, And so I think that 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 was also very early on. I remember receiving a number of communications from congregants who were really concerned that that was going to become part of the narrative writ large in the in the greater global community and in our and in the American community. Yeah, I mean that history is one that I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of folks in the Christian tradition are unaware of the way in which scapegoating and blame has happened in in many in many cases. Um, uh, you know, just filled, fueled, fueled with anti-Semitism and casting the blame uh, for these major medical things uh, on, on Jewish folks a lot of times or immigrants or some other, some other community as it stokes the fires of nationalism, it leads to fascism. We've seen this kind of pattern throughout related to pandemics. So um, yeah, I, I mean, that history, I think, is something Christians need to do some research on because they're not, just most that I talk to are not very aware of the way in which pandemics were played out politically 
mm. uh, and, and and led to just horrible violence. And um, and Ben, the fear of and this is something I've been listening to on a podcast called Cold Switch. The fear of linking. Uh, sort of the devastation that's happening in certain communities to that community because the narrative will get played out that, oh, something's wrong with them. So right now we're seeing that in communities of color with the highest rates, like the highest infection rates and death rates. And we're also seeing it in this particular um, ultra-Orthodox community in Brooklyn where the narrative is starting to get shifted. Oh, look at them. And I always do the little quotation, the them, they aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And they're, right? And so it's hard because we want to make the link between, uh, and particularly in this time, infection rates and certain communities, but we also don't want somebody to take that and run with it and use it in the wrong way. I mean, that, that happened, I mean, you, you don't have to look that far back. I mean, with the AIDS crisis was an example of that big time, right? You, you know, and, uh, and even, even recently, you know, when it comes to um, the also the issue that all Asians, you know, repeat, you know, people who even, you know, maybe American, but right. But, but have, you know, have from Asian descent, right. They, you know, they're the things that have been being said to them is, is, is terrifying. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's, um, there's, you know, we just re- finished reading the book of Leviticus and uh, in the, in the, in the Jewish sort of uh, lectionary cycle and in the annual t- reading of the Torah and you know, there's something about a scapegoat, and um, and very much it very it is very often you know scapegoats are pretty easy to place you know sort of place all of your sins or all of the all, you know everything onto that scapegoat and then you know sort of dispose of it um, and and get and get rid of it. And the challenging part is that is to actually you know I think in contrary to that is to say you know that scapegoat that doesn't that doesn't work. Um, what, and what the rest of Leviticus actually ends up arguing for is, um, personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, you know, sort of, I, I sort of wonder about the, the sort of, you know, the, the ease towards the scapegoatness and the, the recognition, of the rest of Leviticus, which is, no, no, if you want to create a society that's wholly different than what is Egypt, if you want to create a society that, that stands against, you know, persecution and punishment and, uh, and pain and misery, then it is the type, it's the way it, you have to, number one, see that every person has value and worth. And number two, you have to actually take personal responsibility. Um, and, and in that sense, I think that, that that is true. I mean, the reality is, and I don't mean that we're all, we're not we're all responsible for the pandemic, don't get me wrong, but actually, you know, the, the, what's happening has been a wholesale failure, a, a wholesale failure of a lot of different things for which um, the polity, um, you know, to use a, a word, Ben, that you were using earlier, the, pol- the polity actually has responsibility for. And if we want to make, if, you know, you want to make change, and um, then, you, then you, you can't just focus on, on blaming others. You really have to focus in on, 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 the, on what, kind of, uh, what kind of impact you want to have and the, and the recognition that we are all responsible. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I... I kind of want to keep going on that because I think there's such value right there. I mean, when you blame, and I think we're seeing this right now, and you can take it from everywhere from um, this sort of battle between our current administration and the WHO, which is basically the last you know 48 hours, um, and look at that as this attempt to find who, who's to blame for this, and you know this this question of where did it start, and who can we really hold accountable uh, for the for this. 
all of that is an attempt to maintain innocence and refuse responsibility. You know, so like if someone else is to blame, then you can continue to to imagine you're innocent um, and some 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 kind of perfect, pure innocence that absolves you from the, the need to take responsibility for the fact that you are, in fact, dealing with um, a crisis in your own place that has exposed injustice. And there's a lot that has to be um, worked on to resolve the problems of injustice in your own place. And so I, it always seems like a distraction to me, the, the blame game, both in personal lives. I feel like we do it in our own personal lives. I know I do it. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's their fault. You know, I'm not taking any responsibility for that. Um, but, you know, it, we also do it as society. We do it as churches. We do it as societies. Churches do it to clergy. Clergy does it to churches. I mean, it's like kind of the, uh, I'm sure it happens in congregations where somebody is the problem, you know, and instead of looking at, yeah, instead of looking at the, the core issue that is sort of We're the shadow. <laughs> right. <laughs> The core shadow like that people are, you know, that's that that is the cultural problem within the community that needs to be addressed that needs to be brought to light and talked about and wrestled with and struggled through and shifted. It's easier to just say, no, 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 it's that other group's fault, you know. Well, you know, having an eight, eight year old and a four and a half year old in, at home, I know I know a thing or two about who didn't start something um, and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, who, whose fault it really is. And um, and it's it's the it's it's um, it's it's not a mature way of looking at the world. Um, and, you know, I think Dusty, you know, Dusty's are things that I'm not specific enough often when I use the word mature, but I think that there's a lot of immature. I think there's, I think there's some, there's a lot of immaturity and, and it's, it's sort of the work of, it's sort of the thought process of children. And, um, and the more mature way is to, is to be reflective enough to be able to say, you know, we all own this problem. If, you know, we live, we live in a world where we're, we're, deeply interconnected and um and this this COVID-19 has, has definitely taught us you know has taught as much as it has shown us the real cracks in society that, that absolutely exist it also shows us how deeply connected we're going to have to be in order to solve this problem and the only way that we do that is not to shift blame but to say to be able to to have leaders who are capable of saying you know that, that we can be responsible together and uh and unfortunately we're not really seen and i think that that's then therefore our responsibility to um to to use our vote and to use our voice and to make that make make sure that we we demand a type of leadership that um that takes responsibility and demand a type of leadership that um sees the inherent value of human life mm, well said so I think, you know, uh, as we come to the, we're coming down to the pike here on the end, the end of our uh, conversation with you all. We could talk for three more hours. I know that. But, uh, <laughs> right. You know, one of the. You about doing that. We haven't had a chance to actually do that. So we, we probably just need to do, do that. that. So yeah, we'll just yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> on, on next time on our podcast, which we haven't named or started or done anything to work on. The <laughs> oh, I'm let sign me up to be the first guest. I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think two things to kind of conclude, we've already kind of talked about what lessons have you, have, have you learned here? Um, but what do we think to tie, tie this down is like, you know, so how, how are you making it through? What are you seeing yourself and in your people that is helping you persevere to use this, this Greek word that we keep messing around with? Um, <laughs> and, you know, so how are you persevering? And, and then, you know, if you can give us some, just some, um, not, not a forecasting, but just imagine, imagine a future 
after this for us mm. that you think would be a more a more just future. Um, uh, so just kind of talk us through those. I'm gonna let my esteemed colleague go first on that one. <laughs> Uh huh. Well of course you are. Of course you are. Um, how are I? Ma- how how are we making it through? So um, I was I was studying Priya Parker's The Art of Gathering uh, about a month or two before this all started, and um, I'm still I'm still studying her the the actual book she wrote. But she um, she led a webinar a few weeks into the um, into the crisis. Uh, around what it means to have the art of gathering while apart, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and she offered some really beautiful, small reminders of what her book says and additions. So she really talks about having a purpose that is specific and unique and disputable. Um, that when something's indisputable, it's really hard to make decisions around it. But when something is this but isn't that, you get to make decisions around it. Um, And then she talked about kind of helping individual households create the environment that you all together can then do something with in a group gathering. So I led a a study and kind of gathering around the new moon called Rosh Chodesh that I've been meaning to do since I, I have wanted to do this since I started. This is one of the changes of, of this time, right? Is that for four years I've said, I want to start a Rosh Kodesh group. I want to bring people together at the new moon and, and learn and study and, and gather. Um, and for four years, there wasn't time. Um, or there, there, no one would drive at 7.30 p.m. on a whatever, you know. Um, and so we get to do those things now. And um, one of the things that Priya Parker suggests is thinking about the different senses and how you can engage your different senses um, in better and different ways as a group. And so um, we we had like communal senses. We we everyone brought. You had to bring props, right? So everyone had their candle and everyone had their spices. Um, and we had there was a writing prompt, so everyone actually had to like move at one point. And what I found is that. Um, you can actually create space and help other people create space in their space. Um, how many, how many, how many uses of space was in that one, Asher? I like the word space. A lot of spaces. Um, so that's one thing I think is that we can, we can actually be expansive in how we utilize the technological tools that we have um, and the very tangible tools that we have within our within our spaces. Um, that's one thing. Um, I also think that the, on a very, very personal note, um, I am, uh, I, unlike I think many of the people of the world right now, um, I, I am only taking care of me in, in my, in the building that I am in. And so I have had an opportunity to move more and to eat better and to sleep at all. Um, and those things have been really, really key. And I hope that's one of the changes out of all of this is that as we move into whatever comes next, that we all, um, remember what it was like to have a lot of dishes because we made our own food. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And I love what you were talking about. Um, you were saying 
when you were talking about the program that you really wanted to do and how it just kind of fit perfectly into this, um, one of my, in my previous uh, job, the pastor would always say, you try new things with a season. People will forget doesn't work out because you're just you just blame it on the season and so like if it didn't work out it's like oh it's a pandemic we want to try something new but you know it gives us breath and space to say let's just throw some paint at the wall and see what happens um mm. try things that we've always wanted to do yeah thank you yeah asher we want to give you some space to uh, answer <laughs> that question as well thanks thanks for giving me the space uh, for um yeah i think that um well, you know, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of wisdom in your, in, in your, the, the person who uh, had that, who had that, who had the wisdom of sort of throwing the paint at the wall. I mean, I think, you know, a, a couple of things that I think about, this is something that's going to be, that Dusty's probably sick and tired of, of hearing because it's something that I, I sort of harp on a lot. I think that there is, I believe that there is possibility to look for the light in the dark. I think that there is a, I think there are ways to look for um, the growth after a fire, right? That, you know, in a fire ecosystem, in a fire ecosystem where, you know, things sort of burn to the ground, there is always new growth. You know, after the Black Plague, there was the Renaissance. And I think that part of, you know, sometimes part of what, what we have to sort of remember is that it is actually actually sometimes during these difficult dark moments in which um, creativity and the ability to sort of put paint on the wall um, actually comes out. And, uh, and I think that that, whether that creativity looks like a new gathering and a new group, because it's something that you've always wanted to do. And you know what, some of the stuff that didn't actually matter is now gone to the wayside, um, right? Like that, that's part of it. But so, so part of it is, is sort of the creativity that has to, uh, that, that will occur by the, by, by the sheer um, recognition that, um, that, that, uh, you know, what, what was cannot continue to be. Um, and so we have to remake and renew ourselves in, in new ways. And in that sense, I, I sort of wonder, and I don't mean to say this in any negative way, but I wonder if per, uh, persevere is the right word. I mean, I think that the, the you know, sort of a, a question, you know, you know, cause I think that it is on one hand, it is the right word in the sense of maintaining purpose, to, you know, at a moment, right, you know, per perseverance as, a, as, a, as maintaining purpose. But one thing that um, persevere could also, I think, inadvertently mean is to sort of continue as we have been. And I don't think that's what actually persevere actually means uh, in, in the context that you're using it. Because I think it is about, the, you know, maintaining or in, in keeping, you know, being purposeful in the work that we do on the journey of our lives and, journey, and keeping that mission, for, you know, mission focused forward. Um, but at the, at the same time, I think that that, um, that that perseverance is actually going to come about through the creativity and through the ingenuity and through the, the sense of possibility that can come. Um, and, and that's going to require us actually to, to question the status quo. Right. It's going to require us to question nearly everything that we have that has been in existence in the first place. And that's the that is while that is terrifying for lots of reasons and for lots of people there's also a huge opportunity to do that you don't get to do that every day you don't get to actually rethink the whole structure of your you know of your uh synagogue or of your church or of the programs that you've been offering or whatever 
who gets to do that? Everyone is, there's always a legacy and there's always, but this is how we've always done it. There's always, right. you know, uh, you know, that, that small committee of 10 that had been there for 50 years um, doing the same thing that they've always done. And, and yet this is an op, this is an opportunity that we really shouldn't um, waste. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, perseverance in terms of mission forward, but perseverance in a, in a, in a way that ex- explores the, the possibility of change, I think is going to be really key. And, I, and to that point that I made earlier about the renaissance coming after the Black Plague or the, you know, the, the new growth that comes after the forest fire, I, I think that the, one of the things that I think that I would encourage is that, you know, in the scope of history, um, you know, this for us as Jews, this is not the first, we're not the first generation to have, to have confronted things like this before. Mm. Right. And what, you know, whether literally um, was the destruction of the second temple and the exile of our people from, from Israel um, to having inter having to reform and to rethink what the tradition was going to be in a world that, that didn't practice Judaism as written in the Torah to, um, to, uh, the, you know, to the pogroms and the, um, and, and various different, uh, you know, atrocities that happened to our people precisely because we were insular and because people didn't know us, um, to the crusades, to the, you know, uh, to the Spanish inquisition, uh, you know, I, you know, that sort of that, that, all these things that that father was saying at the Passover Seder, well, on one way you can look at it, right, is, and it is a certain view, is, the certain view is, you know, they tried to kill us, you know, we won, let's eat, um, right, like that, that's for sure a view that, that we, that we can have, and we just can't, we can't get along with anyone else, so they just, you know, every time we try to engage with community, it just backfires on us, that, there's, there's sense in that, and I get that argument, but the flip side is to say, you know, listen, through all of those trials, we've survived, right? Our people have thrived. We found ways and we did so in, with creativity and we did so by being people centric and we did so by being mission forward. And we, we you know, we, we did so because um, we have faith in God and faith in each other and walk hand in hand towards that new tomorrow. And so I think the scope of history gives me a sense that as much as there is to fear um, that we have to fear with wisdom and we have to fear with a sense of purpose and we have to fear with a sense of possibility uh, in, in what tomorrow can bring. Wow, that's so good. I mean, I, maybe we should have named this podcast like transforming through a pandemic yeah. or, or <laughs> being, resource, being resourceful or creative. Yeah. Creative, creativity amidst a pandemic. I mean, thank you, thank you, Asher, for um, critiquing and challenging the very theological foundation of our podcast. Uh, Before we even get started, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I would expect nothing less from you. No, that gives us somewhere to really jump off with. Is this the right word? No, I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, there's nothing wrong about perseverance. I mean, right? right? I mean, that that perseverance is a good person. We have to have perseverance. but I also think like the question that, that in terms of perseverance is what are you bringing with? Like what, what's, what's in the, what's going to be in that suitcase. Mm. Right. Um, and if there's a limited thing as, uh, that you can actually pack to go on the journey, you know, to go on the next journey. Well, you know what? That's also going to require, you know, it's going to require, uh, uh, yeah, some rethinking. That's awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Rabbi. Yes and Rabbi Dusty. This has been such a good conversation. (laughs) 
And yeah, I'm sorry that we. This is the first time that we that we actually. I, mean, I have personally met you. Yes. And I really. And awesome. I, I know that we've got to we've got to rectify that situation um, further. And I, I just. You know, um, we so love Ben and and your predecessor, and we and I guarantee that that we we, we know we're going to love you. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to having opportunity to, to learn more about about you and and about your journey as well. And uh, thank you, thank you all for being such incredible partners uh, here in Charlotte. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we want to just offer our peace and love to all the people of Temple of FL who we care about so deeply and to you as you persevere and transform and uh, get creative and resourceful through the pandemic. We wish that to you as well. Thanks a lot, man. Amen. Right. See you all Amen. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thank you again. Bye.